Our scripture reading this morning is from Luke's Gospel, chapter 11, verses 37 through 54. It begins in your church Bibles on page 870 and is in your bulletin. Please stand if you are able as we read from the New Testament. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb, and neglect justice and the love of God, those you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. Please be seated. Let's bow our heads for another moment of prayer. Blessed are those who have learned to acclaim you, who walk in the light of your presence, O Lord. They rejoice in your name all day long. They exult in your righteousness, for you are their glory and their strength. Lord, we want to acclaim you just now. We want to walk in the light of your presence. And we do exalt in this great good news that you are our righteousness. Let me preach your word, I pray, in the way that you want it to be preached. In Jesus' name, amen. Another Sunday. Another day in the life of Jesus as recounted by Luke. And another dinner with a Pharisee. The text just read isn't the only time that Luke tells his readers that a Pharisee, 
that is a member of a first century Jewish sect noted for its strict observance of Mosaic law, invited Jesus to dine with him. It's the second of three. Luke describes the first time in chapter 7 when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to this Pharisee's house and reclined at his table. But, Luke continues, a woman of that town who lived a sinful life, that's code for she was a prostitute, learned that Jesus was eating there, so she crashed the party with an alabaster jar of perfume, and as she stood beside him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then in chapter 14, Luke describes a third dinner party with a Pharisee when he tells us that Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee only to be confronted by a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Whether Jesus ever got around to eating anything at either of these dinner parties is an open question. This much is sure, though. Both were public relations setbacks. Luke's account of the first party ends with the guests mumbling to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And the response of the guests at the third party, in reply to Christ's questions about healing on the Sabbath, and his novel suggestion that they invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind to their banquets, wasn't much better. They remained silent, Luke tells us. They had nothing to say. Which brings us to today's text and Luke's account of the second of those three times a Pharisee asked Jesus to dine with him. And this one wasn't just a public relations setback. It was, from all appearances, a public relations disaster by design, on purpose, at the instigation of Jesus. And so to our text, which begins, a Pharisee asked Jesus to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at table. Now, that might not mean much to us. Come as you are, we're just going to throw something on the barbecue for supper Americans. But in that culture, at that time, an invitation to dinner was a very, very big deal. Showing hospitality to friends and strangers was and remains a bedrock of cultures and countries across the Middle East, including Israel. And without a doubt, the grandest expression of Middle Eastern hospitality was a meal. Hosts spent lavish amounts of money and invested hours of time to prepare the most labor-intensive meals in an effort to make their guests feel welcome and to convince their guests that they were generous and selfless hosts who were worthy of their respect. Kill your enemies with kindness was the operative phrase when you invited someone home for dinner, observed Louisa Shafia, an Iranian-born author. 
And just because hospitality was such a big deal in the Middle East, customs related to extending and receiving hospitality were followed as formal, even sacred, codes of conduct. A host was expected to protect his guests, defend their honor, and to attend to all of their needs as long as they were under his roof. And guests, well, guests were expected to receive whatever the host offered and above all, to avoid any show of hostility or disrespect or rivalry. Such was the accepted code of conduct in matters related to hospitality. And it was the way things were done. Everyone knew it. And for the most part, everyone did as expected. Everyone that is, except Jesus, who on this occasion didn't honor his host by doing what he had to know his host expected him to do as a guest in his house. Wash his hands before he began to eat. For which reason, Luke tells us in verse 38, the Pharisee was astonished to see that Jesus did not first wash before dinner. Now, mind you, we are not talking about the kind of hygienic hand washing for the purpose of cleanliness that's expected of all employees before they return to work. Rather, the hand washing in view was a ritual purification of the hands before a meal known as netalat yadaim, as Mark explained in chapter 7 of his gospel. Quote, the Pharisees do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. Now, here's what Netalat Yadaim looks like in practice, as explained by Rabbi Joel Finkelstein of Beth Emmeth Congregation in Memphis, Tennessee. Welcome to the Anche's Fire Bethel Emmeth Congregation for our discussion of how to wash our hands for bread. If your ring has a stone in it, then you definitely need to remove it. So if we want to put the water on our hands, we want it to cover all the way from our wrist, all the way to the very ends of the fingertips. In order to do that, we're going to need a significant amount of water. So it's good to fill up a nice big cup. If you use a small cup, this is going to be very difficult uh, to do. If you're in a shortage of water, you could follow a more lenient position of covering just simply up to the knuckles. So we do it as follows. You hold the hand this way so that everything is exposed. Your hand is totally exposed to the water. And you pour it twice. Hand is completely covered with water. Then we would take the towel, hold our hands up, and say, Baruch atah Hashem, Elokeinu melech olam, asher kishanu mitzvotah v'tzivanu, al netzilat yadayim. And then we dry the hands. You do not make a blessing while you're drying your hands. That wouldn't be proper. You should focus on the blessing. You shouldn't make a blessing uh, after you dry your hands, because then it's completely over. Rather, you should make the blessing before you dry your hands. 
but also try to hold the hands up so that if there is any water, it falls down on your wrist and not the other way around. The water from your, above your wrist is impure and you wouldn't want it to fall below the wrist and then to fall uh, uh, on top of the wrist. That would be improper. So we want to keep the hands up when we're drying our hands. Do you dry them, you remain silent, and that, then you've accomplished the washing of the hands. And this ritual hand washing, as Rabbi Finkelstein went on to explain, was inspired by Exodus chapter 30, verse 20, in which Moses commanded the temple priests, whenever Aaron and his sons approach the altar to minister by presenting a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash their hands so that they will not die. Rabbi Finkelstein then explained, in ancient times, this opportunity of trying to live at this high level of purity was only for the Kohanim, the priests. But we, nowadays, have an opportunity to try to be holy every day. Every time we wash our hands before breaking bread, we fulfill this concept of holy living and have a chance to be a little bit like a priest. In saying that, he was channeling the Pharisees, who wanted everyone to be as holy as the priests who served the temple, and the land of Israel to be as holy as the temple precinct. And so they were adamant about bringing these temple regulations into the home of every Jew, so that every meal would be like one of the temple's sacrificial meals, and everyone who ate the meal like one of the temple's priests. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, is there? Well, yes, there is. In a word, externalism. The mistaken belief that performing rituals and fulfilling the letter of the law and getting it right is what God wanted from his people, wants from all people, really. That's what's wrong with it. And moralism. The ruinous notion that we should try harder or God won't be happy with us, that's what's wrong with it too. And self-righteousness, a feeling or display of moral superiority born of the belief that our beliefs, our actions, our affiliations are better than those of others, that's what's wrong with it. And hypocrisy, feigning virtue or goodness while concealing one's less than virtuous attitudes and behaviors when the rituals and trying harder just don't work. In brief, having a public face and a private face. That's what's wrong with it too. Externalism and moralism and the likelihood of self-righteousness and hypocrisy in their train made the Pharisees and their agenda wrong and dangerous. So dangerous that Jesus took the unusual step of warning his disciples soon after this dinner party, watch out, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. That is, be on your guard against the insidious character and consequences of their teaching. Because their goal, when all is said and done, was nothing less than self-salvation. The aim of their ritual hand washings and other practices like it was to create a society of people who would separate themselves from everything that was declared impure by the Levitical law, 
The word Pharisee, in fact, comes from the Hebrew word parush, meaning separated. And then, with the whole nation ceremonially pure because everyone was doing everything by the book, God would be pleased with them and would deliver the nation from the oppression of its unholy Roman occupier. He would have no other choice. But to put it mildly, Jesus would have none of it. Which is why when everyone else was performing the netalat yadaim, he didn't. But instead went straight for the falafel and the hummus to the astonishment of his hosts and all of the other guests. And then after swallowing a few mouthfuls of food, he turned to his host and in a barefaced, calculated breach of Middle Eastern hospitality, did what no respectable guest would have ever done. He criticized his host publicly and shamed him. Now you Pharisees, he said, you cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness, you fools. Didn't he who made the outside make the inside also? Now, as Robin might have said to Batman, holy violation of social norms. It's not hard for me to imagine the shock, the embarrassment, the discomfort, even the humiliation his host must have felt on being called out like that. Now, some days ago, someone close to me took issue with something she overheard me saying to someone else and out of the blue, angrily reprimanded me in a profanity-laced rage that left me reeling and wondering, where did that come from? What did I do to deserve that? And I imagine that that is how our Lord's host must have felt when Jesus rounded on him, looked at him and said, you fools, red-faced, mortified, disgraced. That's what he must have felt. Only this host and the other guests in their capacity as representatives of the Pharisees and teachers of the law deserved and needed Christ's reprimand since they were living as if and leading others to believe that their religious rituals sincerely performed were all that was needed to fulfill the demands of divine righteousness. Please God, put them in their debt, and oblige him to restore Israel to the glory days of kings David and Solomon. If they ceremonially washed their hands, if they gave careful attention to their cups, pitchers, and kettles, if they didn't eat certain foods, if they didn't eat with non-Jews, if they didn't touch dead bodies, lepers, or moldy leather, if they avoided walking more than three-quarters of a mile on the Sabbath, if they gave 10% of everything their fields produced to the temple, even their garden herbs, then they would have done their duty. The outside of their cup would have been clean, God would think well of them, and all would be well. But no, said Jesus, that's not the case. All would not be well because an emphasis on outward rituals, on doing the religious thing, on fulfilling the letter of the law, on getting it right, 
which doesn't acknowledge and address all of the awful garbage that's inside, which leaves the greed and the wickedness untouched, which leaves the jealousy and the envy, the lusts and the craven desires, the discontent, that low-level grumbling that's going on all the time, that pouting, that self-pity, those fantasies, the prejudices, those infernal comparisons that you're always making with other people, those criticisms, judgments, bitterness, and anger, if those are unacknowledged and intact, then the program is a sham. It's all humbug and worse than useless, meriting only a one-word exclamation of trouble to come. Whoa! The word woe, Uai in Greek, is more than just an expression of alarm. It's an expression of pending doom. And Jesus used it more than anyone else. And when he did, his meaning was plain. Watch out. Don't go there. And that's certainly the case for the six woes which he pronounced over his host and the other dinner guests after he called them fools. Each of his words of woe carefully chosen because each was built on and more damning than the one before, should have warned his hearers that they had taken a wrong turn, were headed in the wrong direction, and needed to turn around. His first woe sounded the alarm about their root problem, the glitch in the software which doomed them and their agenda from the start. Woe to you, Pharisees, Jesus began. For you tithe mint and rue and every herb, but neglect justice and the love of God. Their sanctimonious practice of religion had crowded out what should have been the joyous preoccupation of their every waking hour. Loving their neighbors, near and far, because God loved those neighbors even as he loved them. And his second woe took issue with the inevitable outcome of their preoccupation with rituals and law-keeping. Success in these matters left them proud, and pride inclined them to believe that they deserved to be rewarded and honored for their efforts and accomplishments. Woe to you, Pharisees, Jesus continued, for you love the best seat in the synagogue, that is, the seat at the front of the sanctuary, otherwise reserved for visiting scholars and dignitaries. And you love greetings in the marketplaces, because everyone knows if you're greeted in the marketplace, it means you're a somebody. His third woe warned them that they were dead wrong about the impact they were having on their fellow Jews. They thought they were saving the nation. In reality, they were dooming it by pitting Jew against Jew and stirring up a xenophobic dislike of people from other countries. Woe to you, Jesus said, for you're like unmarked graves which people walk over without knowing it. And Jewish graves were usually identified with a marker because, according to Numbers 19.16, contact with the grave made a person unclean. If someone walked over an unmarked grave, then he or she would be defiled and not even know it. Christ's meaning was obvious. People who joined the Pharisees or practiced what they preached didn't become holy and acceptable. 
They became unholy and unacceptable to God, though they would have thought otherwise. And his fourth woe, directed at their cronies, the lawyers, decried the go-it-alone individualism and lovelessness of their program. Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. It was every man for himself. And the fifth woe bemoaned their aim to align their program for national salvation with the storied history of Israel's prophets. Woe to you, declared Jesus, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. But their effort to connect their program to the message of the prophets would backfire, Jesus warned, because instead of picking up a few points in the polls by their self-serving identification with the prophets, the blood of the prophets shed from the foundation of the world would be required of that generation. And the sixth and final woe, well, we'll return to that one in just a minute. But for now, let's hit the pause button and thank God that all of that was then and not now. Right? That the Pharisees were so first century, but thankfully we're living in the 21st century. Right? that the Pharisees were Jews and were Christians, right? Wrong, wrong and dead wrong because the lore of externalism which bedeviled the Pharisees and the recourse to moralism and the self-righteousness and the hypocrisy which inevitably follow in the train of these isms is as strong in our day and context as it was in theirs. We're as vulnerable as they were to the lie that God is impressed with us and our religious rituals. And we're as vulnerable to the fiction that he's gratified by our law-keeping and is pleased that we're displeased with the way things have been going and is as invested in our campaigns for moral reform as we are. Yes, there are times when the rituals and the law-keeping and the campaigns are rightly motivated and commendable, but too often they're also symptoms of a false gospel too, one that's especially attractive to those of us who are motivated by the biblical impulse, as one commentator put it, just because we have a high view of God's law and we want to do right by God and right by his word, we evangelicals are vulnerable to the logic of the Pharisees and the awful consequence of that logic, reducing the gospel to a message about what we do, to a message about religious rituals and self-reliant law-keeping and right conduct and moral improvement, whether that moral improvement is the social ethic and collectivism of the left or the personal ethic and individualism of the right. We're vulnerable to trading in the gospel for a place at the political table 
for the sake of some strategic political alliance with politicians who promise to champion our values, even though their lust for power and materialism and their contempt for the truth and their tribalism and racism and nationalism, in other words, their insides and their character stand in direct opposition to Jesus' radical ethic of neighbor love in view of God's radical divine love. And to the extent that we believe God wants us and everyone else to just straighten up and fly right, that he wants us to get our acts together, that he wants us to be strong, to be in control, to be in charge, to be in power, that he wants us to take up, promote, and enforce a biblical code of conduct for ourselves and others, whether the resulting conduct reflects inward realities or not. To that extent, we've been leavened with the yeast of the Pharisees and are in danger of communicating to the world that dutiful conformity to religious rituals and moral improvement is all that God expects of fallen humanity and all that he wants from us. And in doing so, we'll have traded in the pearl of great price for a lemon and left behind the glorious good news that salvation belongs to our God and the Lamb to whom alone belongs praise and glory. Because anything that even remotely suggests that the favor of God and the satisfaction of his righteousness depends on how we sinners behave is a false gospel. As pastor and preacher Alistair Begg put it, society cannot be changed by external means. The only way a society or culture is changed is if the hearts of its citizens are changed. And the only way hearts can be changed, the only way the inside of the cup and the dish can be cleaned is by way of the gospel. Which brings us in closing back to that sixth woe of Jesus in Luke chapter 11, verse 52. Woe to you, lawyers, he said, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. The Pharisees and lawyers had taken away the key of knowledge. Of all the woe-deserving things they did, this one was the most damning. But just what was this key of knowledge? At bottom... It was, and it is, a right reading of the Bible. The Pharisees and the lawyers got the Bible all wrong. They thought it was a rule book, an exhaustive compendium of religious duties and responsibilities, of prescribed and proscribed practices, and of social norms which they and everyone else had to master, or else, when all along, it was a love story, a beautiful, often heartbreaking, but happy ending love story about a king who so loved the world that he gave his one and only son to be an atoning sacrifice for sin 
and vowed that whoever believed in him would not perish, but have eternal life. The key of knowledge that opens ears and opens eyes, the one by which transgressions are blotted out, iniquity is washed away, sins are cleansed, insides are made clean, and hearts are changed. The key that opens up the door of eternal life and changes the world is ultimately Jesus Christ himself, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, said Jesus to the Pharisees during another run-in with them. But the scriptures point to me. See, there was a reason Jesus didn't wash his hands before dinner when he went to dine with the Pharisee and why he called him a fool and leveled him and his other dinner guests with woe after woe. The single most important thing in all the world was on the line. The message of God's love for sinners, of decisive cleansing and decisive deliverance from evil through Jesus not through ritual, not through law-keeping, not through anything else, was at stake. The gospel of Christ is the key. And of the many gospel summaries you'll find in God's word, the one found in Titus 3 is a great way to conclude this sermon. It begins with a frank description of the dirt that covers the inside of our cups and dishes, At one time, it begins, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But then, praise God, it describes what it takes to make such cups and dishes sparkle inside and out. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, it continues. He saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. You see, the question isn't, did you wash your hands before dinner? It's, have you been washed by the blood of Jesus, which cleanses us from all sin? Have you been saved through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit? If so, then the inside of your cup is clean. You are righteous. You have peace with God. There is therefore now no condemnation No fear of condemnation. You can bank on that. And so bank on that. And then all of the rest will surely follow. Let's pray.
my former pastor father, my mentor, my friend, Jack Miller, used to say, we are all of us recovering Pharisees. He was right. This tendency to Phariseeism is in all of us. This tendency to try and figure out what we need to do to make things right, to make things secure, to establish ourselves, to make a name for ourselves. We think it depends on us, and it doesn't, and it never will. It's always, and it's only about Jesus. Lord, forgive us for the many ways we are Pharisees. Give us the grace of repentance for this and turn us into a people who only and always lift up the name of Jesus and then do as Jesus did in joyful, heartfelt, sacrificial, unnerving obedience. In his name I pray, amen.